This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Do you drive a vehicle? Then you'll find AutoCorrect helpful, especially on Coach Charlie's Tip of the Week. Listen to our podcast with me, Coach Charlie Melton, on any podcasting platform or on the MPB Public Media app. From MPB Think Radio, you're listening to Creature Comforts, the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. The bat might not be one of the feature animals when thinking about Mississippi wildlife, such as deer or catfish, but Mississippi's home to 15 types of bat that play a significant role in Mississippi's ecosystem. So today we welcome Caitlin Cross from the Museum of Natural Science to talk about the role of the bat and answer any questions you might have about these winged mammals. And as always, Dr. Major's on the line, ready for your pet questions. Libby likes to hear your wildlife experiences. You can email animals at mpbonline.org. If you miss Creature Comforts on Thursday, it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning, Libby. Hope you're doing well this morning. Any interesting sightings around your yard recently? Good morning. Um, I finally got a hummingbird. Oh, very good. So I've been excited about that. It's just one little guy who um, looks hungry. He's um, and you know we talked about you growing native plants for animals. Um, not so much maybe excluding feeding, but you know just kind of the benefits of doing the native plants instead. And he's just almost exclusively. We've caught him on the feeder, I think, a couple of times, and uh, he's spending all of his time on the native honeysuckle and the um, red buckeye. Um, there's a lot of color on my red buckeye right now, but when I go in close inspection, before those flowers open up enough, I don't think they can um, utilize the, the pollen or the nectar, but um, it, some of the flowers, so he's you know kind of selectively playing with that so anyway i was glad to have and the first ones that come through you know generally are still migrating north so he may be gone today i didn't see him this morning as i was leaving but um it gives me hope that the rest will follow as they usually do we've been here in a perula i saw one perula investigating the spanish moss close to where they usually nest and thought, oh, it's one of ours returning. But um, I haven't seen him doing that anymore lately. And that was before we had a big hail event. I know everybody Mm. didn't get it, but we had, I mean, um, I don't know, how big is that? Maybe ping ping pong pong ball. ball. Yeah. Yeah, about that big. And I've never seen this much hail on the ground at my house. And it was bouncing off of the um yard and all over the porch i had to be really careful going out on the porch trying to watch it you know just for some reason i have that obsession of i like to watch weather but um so anyway i then i started worrying because i've not seen the perula that i saw close to the moss since all the hail fell so because i was also reading that um Cold snaps and hail events and hard rainstorms are um, some of the leading causes of death of adult birds. So anyway, I'm hoping that he's still there. And I did hear a perula yesterday, but I didn't see one close to the house. And uh, another great sighting for me on the butterfly list is... um, And Paul noticed it and took a great picture of a giant swallowtail. And it 
one of those that looked like it had newly emerged from the cocoon. So it was a beautiful animal. And uh, we have a lot of mourning cloaks. I've seen several red-spotted purples around and uh, tiger swallowtails. So um, if you're a butterfly watcher, this is a good time to get out there and start looking. Any events coming up that you wanted to remind us about? Uh, yes, and Caitlin, I think, has the specifics on it, but um, Nature Fest is coming up at okay. the Natural Science yeah. Museum, and uh, there are a couple of good events at the Clinton Nature Center coming up. Um, really, all the centers around the state have got things going on for spring, mm-hmm. so um, remember that when you're getting out. And the state parks want everybody to know that uh, – they're open for business and ready to have hikers on their trails. So um, it's a good time to get outside in Mississippi. Very good. Uh, we've got a pet question email-wise for Dr. Major. But first, uh, I think we have a bat-related question, bat box specifically, from Betty in Tupelo. Betty, you're on the air with us, so go ahead. Uh, good morning. I, I would like to put in a bat house in my backyard and um, I just didn't know if that was a good idea. How far away from the house does it need to be? Because I have a deep backyard. Any recommendations? Yes. So bat house, you can even install it on your house, but I generally discourage that. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a certain distance from your house as long as it gets good uh, solar access. So it can be far away from your house or as close to it as you want to. It also has to be at least eight to ten feet off the ground and that's okay. that solar access is because they need to be warm in there right yes yeah. so they're primarily using bat houses in the summer months when they're having pops and those pups are born without hair so they need that extra warmth from the sun so they need the hot hot okay. temperatures okay and should the opening in the house face any specific direction uh, they say generally east to west, but I, I've seen as long as it's, you know, pointed towards a water source, that tends to be the best success that I've seen. Okay, all good advice. Thank you so much. Thanks for kicking off the show, Betty. So, uh, Dr. Major, as always, is joining us from his clinic in Jackson. Good morning, Dr. Major. Have a kitten email here for you that says, a very young kitten has shown up at my house. I have two 12-year-old cats who hiss at it and refuse to eat around it. Meanwhile, the kitten, which is malnourished but otherwise healthy, eats some of the older cat's food, which is a little canned over a little dry mix underneath. It can eat and will drink milk, but I wonder if there's some nourishment I should offer it to bring it up to size. It's probably about two months old, but undersized for whatever age it might be. Dr. Major, my first thought on this is I have always heard that giving milk to a cat is sort of like an old wives' tale. Is milk really good for a little kitten? You know, if it's the right kind of milk, and of course there's a kitten milk replacer called, uh, off the top of my head, KMR, kitten milk replacer. Uh, and this, certainly that can be uh, can be given. I do not like to give too much of it, though. And if this kitten is eating, uh, I would prefer that it eat uh, kitten uh, food rather than adult cat food. And I know this sounds cra- <coughs> crazy in a way, but consider adopting another kitten about this age uh i realized this one came up to the house but it seems like they do much better when they have some siblings or uh other uh kittens the same age 
uh, to be able to interact with, to play with, to fight with, and they learned a lot from doing that. But uh, I would do this also. You need to get this kitten into your vet and have it checked over if you could. Uh, certainly check the skin. Uh, and by skin, some of the kittens have ringworm, this sort of thing. I'm not saying this kitten does. But it'd be good to have a vet check on this kitten, especially if it's between six and eight weeks of age. And uh, would it be a good idea to, if uh, if you may, as you recommend, maybe if the, you got the kitten food to have a separate feeding area to where the twelve-year-old cats that are established there have their food in one kind of spot right. in the in the kitten elsewhere? Right, and it may be a little bit hard to do, but uh, certainly would be better for the kitten to to eat a food designed for a kitten and. Uh, not be eating the adult cat food. Of course, the adult cats might want to eat the kitten's food, which is always <laughs> the case. It's kind of like the old thing of uh, if it's a dog, that uh, cats want to eat the dog food and uh, dogs want to eat the cat food. So it's, it's, it's a constant battle where you have different ages and such a young kitten. Very good. Uh, here is a kind of a more of a general wildlife uh, question. So, Libby, you might want to chime in on this one as well. It says, my mother has squirrels getting into her attic, and I can see where they're getting in, and I can see where I can block the entrance with hardware cloth to prevent them from, from getting in, but I don't want to trap them in the attic or prevent the mother from getting back to her babies. I've seen a DYI one-way doors where they can get out but not back in, so when the babies are old enough to be able to get out of a one-way passage, is it a good idea to install this sort of thing? Let me, what, what are your thoughts? Oh, I tell you what, in my maybe Caitlin's got an opinion over here. I know in my attic, I've wanted to get the babies out as quick as I could and put them in a place like if you can build any kind of little wooden box or I guess even a sturdy box, get them out where the mother can access them but not have them coming and going from my attic. But Caitlin, what are you what is your opinion? Yeah, squirrels can be um, detrimental to keep in your attic. They like to chew on wires, so mm-hmm. I like to get them out as quick as possible. So, I mean, installing the one-way device can work. It can be effective. I've also seen people trap the squirrels directly, so they're not adding too much artificial things to their house. Um, and then, yeah, get those babies out and just relocate them to a little nest box for a while. Um, another, and I don't know if this is an old wives' tale, but they often hear about the scent of a human. So if you're going to move the babies, would it be a good idea to have, like, work gloves or something on to? I mean, in general, but that's not, it's not the scent thing. It's, uh, you might have some germs on you or the squirrel might have germs on it. So it's just a personal protective um, in that case. Okay. But, but I think the consensus is what I'm hearing then is it's probably a better idea to kind of get them out permanently because again, they don't. The, the attic is not their natural habitat, obviously. So the yeah. the better you can get them back out in nature to do their squirrel thing, yeah. probably would be the way to go. And if they chew on your wires, it can kill them. Of course, they get electrocuted, and it causes you a lot of problems too. So it's better for you both if they can get back outside. Yeah, and if you're sealing up that area, I've um, don't recommend using foam because squirrels can just go and chew that right back up. Okay, good point. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. If you want to join our conversation with a question or comment, you can email animals at mpbonline.org. 
We've heard from her briefly in the first segment. We're going to spend the rest of the hour talking with our guest today. It's Caitlin Cross, memologist at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. We're going to be talking today about bats, particularly the tricolored bat. Uh, Caitlin, thanks for joining us on the show again. If you would, tell us a little bit about some of the things you do in the museum as a mammologist. Hi. So I work with a lot of the non-game mammals. So I particularly work with species of conservation need. So those are federally listed or maybe be declining in the state, which a lot of my work revolves around bats. I also work with spotted skunks, which are incredibly rare in the state. And some mice, like old field mice and meadow jumping mice. The spotted skunk, that's interesting. So it's black with white spots? Yes, and it's smaller than our striped skunks. And they can climb trees, which our striped skunks can't. And they can perform a handstand, so they can walk on their front paws. Oh, wow. (laughs) That's unusual. I don't think I've ever heard that about an animal before. You're not going to forget it if you see one. (laughs) He can do that, and and I can't, so that's pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so as we said, we're going to talk about bats, uh, especially, though, the tricolored bat. So tell us a little bit about tricolored bats. So Mississippi is home to 15 species of bats, and the tricolored bat is the smallest. They run around 5 to 7 grams. That is a tiny, tiny little thing. And um, I work with them a lot because they are one of the species that is – mostly affected by white-nose syndrome. So white-nose syndrome is caused by a fungus called Pseudogymnoastis destructans, or PD for short. And Thankfully, there is a shorter version. Yes, nobody wants to say that 10 times. <laughs> um, so this fungus uh, originated in New York in 2006, and um, or that was the first time we documented, and it has spread to Canada, to the West Coast, and last year I saw my first case of white-nose syndrome in the state was on a tricolor bat in a culvert. So that was the first time documenting it in a culvert um, and not a cave or mine. So uh, up to then, we didn't really know if the fungus could manifest inside a culvert. So um, but I see tricolors most prominently in our wintertime. There are most abundant species in culverts and caves and such. And Right now, as it stands, our numbers are increasing, which is great, but the rest of the range, it's severely decreasing and has declined over 90%, and that's why Fish and Wildlife currently has it proposed to list it as endangered under the Endangered Species Act. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio, visiting today with Caitlin Cross from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, talking about bats, especially the tricolored bats. So if you have a bat question, uh, Caitlin works with uh, all of them. So if you have a bat question or a pet question for Dr. Major, or if you have a, a wildlife encounter that you'd like to share with us, you can email the show by sending it to animals at mpbonline.org. So to maybe kind of give us something to compare to, Libby mentioned earlier that she had seen her first hummingbird. So are these tricolored bats maybe about the same size as a hummingbird? I guess relatively, yeah. They are pretty small um, as a hummingbird. So this is the bat I like to say is the size and color of a McDonald's chicken nugget. There we go. I think I remember we talked about that before, and that's a good uh, comparison. <laughs> yeah, they have that same kind of blonde color to them. Um, so yeah. And are there really three colors on them? From the base of the tip of the hair to the you know, base to the tip, it's three different shades. Okay, so shades of a, of, of a chicken nugget shade. <laughs> <laughs> yes. from burnt to lightly cooked. Okay. <laughs> 
Um, so you said caves and culverts, is that their kind of their natural habitat? Well, culverts well, culvert, are... Yeah, right, right. But caves would be... Caves and tree hollows. Um, so during the summer months, they're not so much in caves, but they will roost in trees in the tree hollows. They'll roost uh, in the foliage, especially if there's any um, dead leaves hanging around or Spanish moss. They'll hang out in there. So. Um, what is their diet? Uh, all our bats in Mississippi eat insects, and the smaller you are, the smaller the insects you can consume. So we have our big brown bat, which loves beetles, and tricolor bats will pick off the smaller moths and smaller insects, including mosquitoes, but not as much as some people would let you believe. Mosquitoes mm-hmm. are tiny, and they're hard to capture when you're flying around at night. So they're going to pick something that's going to be more nutrient-rich, like a moth. Right, the better bang for their buck, as it were. Mm-hmm. And are, are bats mostly nocturnal then? Oh, absolutely. Um, but you will see them sometimes during the daytime, and you typically see them uh, flying out around at dusk. So if you ever do want to see a bat flying around, just step out of your yard as the sun's setting, and you probably will see them. Yeah, I was telling Caitlin, we've seen them a couple of times this week. And it's just as the sun is set, just as the mosquitoes are kind of coming out. And I guess other insects are, too. It might be a great insect hunting time, but we've seen a bat scoping around. But she tells me it's going to be hard to identify it just from me sitting on the porch seeing it fly. And that dim light, I can't get really, I can't get much to tell. Yeah, so as long as your nightly temperatures are above 50 degree Fahrenheit, that's usually when they're active. Uh, we've got some phone calls to get to, so let's start on the phone lines again from uh, Franklin County. Don has called in today. Good morning, Don. You're in the air with us. I was trying to see how do you go about getting bets out the attic. That's a very good question. I get a lot of those questions, and that's one I usually don't recommend doing it yourself. We have a lot of professional excluders in the state that are trained to do this, and the reason why I don't recommend doing this yourself because bats can get into a crevice the width of your pinky. Mm. And so these people are trained to look for those signs and see where else they are. And also, it depends on the time of year. So right now, we're in a sweet little spot between winter and summer where they're migrating out. So if they're there in the winter, there's a potential that they won't be there in the summer. But if you're more in the coastal latitudes, they could stay there year-round. Um but this is a good time to exclude bats. Once we get into late April, early May, that's when they start having pups. And we generally do not recommend um, excluding during that time because the mother bats will get stressed out and they will abandon their babies. And so uh, if you have Internet access, you could probably Google bat removal or something. And, and you said there's plenty of, of, of folks that do that in Mississippi. Yeah. And you can also call me. I have a list of ones that are permitted in the state and trained in do, doing this specifically. All right. And could you give us the general number for the museum? You can call 601-576-6000. All right. Uh, Don, thanks for the call. Hopefully that uh, is helpful. Let's uh, stay on the phone lines here for just a moment. It's our friend Rachel in Eupora who is up next. Go ahead, Rachel. You're on the air with us. Good morning. So uh, I actually found a bat in my yard on the ground a few days ago, and uh, I want to describe it and see if Ms. Hartfield can uh, – did I get that name right? 
Yeah, yeah that's my mm-hmm. name. Yeah, although Mrs. Cross uh, probably is going to know more about it, how to identify I, it. Okay, yeah. that's who I meant to ask. Yeah, Caitlin, and, yeah. And uh, want to know uh, if I describe it, if you might be able to give the name of it. Okay. Uh, it, it was reddish-brown. It had uh, what I would call a poof on its head. It was small. It did already have fur and was very cute. <laughs> so you're dealing with an adult bat, and you said reddish-brown. So that tells me it's either a red bat or a seminal. Would you say it was more of a lighter color? Just uh, the color of auburn hair. Okay. So that leads me more to that was probably our eastern red bat. Um, the Seminoles uh-huh. are more darker mahogany color. And um, uh-huh. eastern red bats are one of our most common species. They only dwell in trees. And they mm-hmm. have a long fur tail. And they'll have fur even around the edging on their wings. And the reasons for that is they're on trees and they need extra warmth to keep them safe and warm. And their color is to mimic dead uh, leaves or um, fall leaves, especially, or pine cones. So these Uh bats like to hang on branches, sometimes just by one foot. And they'll tuck their wings in and they'll use that long tail essentially as a blanket. And they'll cover their wings and they'll go up to their face. So they can blend in pretty well on a tree. Wow. Well, um, I think this little fellow was in distress and probably did not live. I moved it uh, with some paper to a place under the bushes. And when I checked again uh, a few hours later, he was not there. Okay. Um, Yeah, so most of our... What might have happened, do you think? I think it had a broken wing. Uh, I don't know if another animal hurt it or what. Yeah, these are, so bats are prey items to various bird species like hawks and owls. Mm -hmm. And also Mm -hmm. when they're roosting on a tree and it's during the daytime, say like our beloved cardinals see them and they like to mess with them and knock them down. So, uh, yeah, it happens. It's it's all a part of the natural world. Um, uh-huh. But a lot of our bat species cannot take off from the ground. So red bats uh-huh. like to flip on their back and make themselves look big and scary, but they're tiny little things. And And they'll try to, if they can, if there's a tree nearby, they like to climb to it and climb up. So with that bush you put it on i probably climbed up a little bit to get it high enough off the ground before it could take off so it was good that Mm -hmm. you checked up on it and did not see it again and i'm glad you used a piece of paper to help uh, transport the brat usually i use a branch um, to keep you distance from the bat and um, usually they can grip onto the bat just the same as they probably did with your paper or you if you used your paper to scoop underneath it so thank you for not using your hands you you bet so thank you very much. This is so interesting. All right, Rachel, always good to hear from you on Creature Comforts. Uh, before our next break, let's uh, invite Dr. Major into the conversation again quickly. So, Dr. Major, uh, have you ever encountered a bat in the clinic, either as an invader or maybe someone that brought one in? I've encountered several bats over the years. I would say that exactly what was just said about being careful with them. They either use, if you're going to pick to get bat up and, and move it, whatever, uh, either use gloves, uh, like uh, gardening gloves, 
but better slide it onto a piece of cardboard or paper. Uh, there's evidence, and certainly I'm, you don't want to scare people, but I would rather people not be bitten by by a bat, which they can do. And uh, cats will predate or pre- when you have a bat on the ground that's fluttering around, maybe sick. Uh, certainly, it attracts cats and this sort of thing. So be careful. Uh, I having traveled to Central America quite a bit, I've seen some very large bats. Uh, they actually have the vampire bats down there, which we don't have, which is good. <laughs> and just use common sense. Uh, just don't go pick up one barehanded, as we said. I think that's important. Uh, I've had one or two brought into the clinic. They were in various stages of dying and euthanize them humanely rather than letting them just struggle mm-hmm. over a course of years. Okay, Right. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest for the hour is Caitlin Cross from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Hey, if you want to join our conversation this morning, you can email animals at mpbonline.org. Uh, so, uh, Caitlin, uh, Libby mentioned earlier that uh, Nature Fest is coming up at the museum. If you could g- uh, give us some details. Yes, Nature Fest is happening this Saturday, April 1st. It runs from <laughs> noon to 4. Uh, we're doing a lot of fun things like we do every year. This year we're having the Hattiesburg Zoo come and bring some of their critters. Great. So we're also doing tours behind the scenes. So you can see behind the scenes of the aquariums or come see our research collections. Say hi to me. I'm, I'll be back there. And we also have, I think, an inflatable arena so for kids to play around in. So it's a lot of new fun things this year. And also, if you want to know more about bats, are you really curious about it? We have our annual Mississippi Bat Working Group meeting next Thursday, April 6th. It starts at 9, uh, and it goes to, I believe, 4 o'clock. And it also is at the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Okay. Uh, so what kind of current research projects are you involved with? So white-nose syndrome is the biggest one for bats. Um, So that's usually what I do in the wintertime. Usually January and February, I am mostly out of the field going into our caves. We do have a few caves in Mississippi in the culverts and collecting swabs uh, to be submitted uh, to a lab for genetic testing. Um, And outside of that, I have a project that's been going on for three years. I'm finally wrapping up. So now I get to do the fun part of actually analyzing the data that I've collected. Uh, As a field biologist, it's always fun going out in the field. It's not so fun doing the little write-up at the end uh, where I'm stuck to a desk. But this project, I am looking at tricolor behaviors within a culvert. Uh, What areas of the culvert are they selecting? We know a lot in the caves they prefer more of the colder areas, but with the culverts, we're not seeing that so much. It's, it seems to be a little bit different. And so we're trying to figure out what structures do they really like. And this is all going to feed into um, decisions with when it comes to our Department of Transportation of um, maybe it's a culvert I have not been into. Well, I can say maybe this culvert's a little too small. It wouldn't really house a lot of bats or you know, such structures is not favorable for them. So that's the hope to do with this. But um, tricolor bats tend to inhabit uh, whatever they will or want to, as long as there's a good site nearby and they kind of filter into the other sites. So this one culvert I'm really looking into, it's over, well over a thousand feet long. It's a massive culvert. And so there's a lot of culverts nearby that have a lot of good tricolor bats. 
and I've always been curious to know if bats are moving from this one site to the other site. So I tagged several, I tagged close to 300 bats to see if they move. And I, over the three years, I have yet to see any move from this culvert to the other culverts. So it's a very curious thing. Um, it's not quite what I expected. And, but these bats are returning every year. So that's good to see, though. So how do you tag a, a chicken nugget? <laughs> <laughs> very carefully. Uh, so I have two methods. Uh, one is using a pit tag. That's a, essentially like a microchip. And just like you would do with a dog or a cat, or at least that's what I did when I used to work at a vet clinic, is uh, you lift the skin behind the shoulder blades and you implant it underneath the skin. And uh, that will be good for the life of the bat. So as long as I have my transmitter, uh, my receiver, it uh, sends uh, energy to that pit tag reader uh, tag to um, give me a code. So it's a long code associated with that bat, and it's not repeated anywhere else. And I also have a tiny little band that I put on the bat wing. So you have a tiny little chicken nugget, and you're trying to read these tiny little numbers. <laughs> so as long as your eyesight's good or you bring yourself some um, – binoculars or not binoculars but you know what i mean glasses mm -hmm. you can see them all right so we've been talking about white nose syndrome and i think uh, libby asked you this uh, during the last break is there any thought or threat or whatever that it would move into humans absolutely not this is a bat specific uh, fungus all right um so let's uh let's talk about some things that people might not know about bats which myself included is probably a lot and that's why we're here on the show this morning enjoying your visit with us but are some bats pollinators there are pollinating bats they are out west uh, and they have a long nose and a long tongue just like a hummingbird to get into the nectar now there is this one bat it's called a pallet bat that's texas on west and it doesn't have a long nose like that, but it likes to get into nectar flowers as well. So when since it doesn't have that long nose, it gets covered in pollen. So it's actually a more effective pollinator than the actual true, what we call pollinating bats because of that. Uh, and also we were talking about uh, off air, uh, the uh, bat droppings are, are somewhat valuable maybe as a fertilizer sometimes. Yeah, so bat droppings are called guano. Um, some people do collect them and use them to fertilize their garden. I would probably prefer more cow manure uh, than that, but because with those bat droppings, there are things that can be transmitted. So white nose syndrome can be transmitted from fungus and be spread around doing that too as well. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. If you have a question about bats for our guest, you can email the show by sending it to animals at mpbonline.org. So we've been mentioning that there are 15 different kinds of bats in found in Mississippi, and I guess all parts of the state would have different kinds of bats? Yes, yeah, so there's some that are from statewide, and then others like the Indiana bat. That is a federally listed endangered species. And they use more uh, the northern latitudes of the United States <laughs> But in the summer months, we actually have some migrate south to our northern part of the state. And they'll use, uh, we have detected them in Holly Springs National Forest and Tishomingo area. So that's one we only see during the summer months. Another one is like the silver-haired bat. They're only here in the winter months. And we've gotten, I think we're at six confirmed observations now, five or six. Uh, but we don't usually survey for them. And we used to think that they were more 
northern when they come down. But uh, two years ago, we actually had one on the detected on the coast. So it's always increasing our uh, state of knowledge with these bats. Bats love to uh, prove me wrong. Uh, say, oh, no, they'll never do that. They'll never do that. And the next thing I know, I have a bat doing exactly what I said they wouldn't do. <laughs> and this winter was a great example of this. And I love working with our wildlife rehabbers because they introduced me to a lot of things that I've never seen before. So bat pops, usually, you know, like I said, into April, May, maybe June. We had a big brown pup in January. Hmm. That blew my mind. I sat there for two hours. I was like, no way. They can't be doing this. What are they doing to me? This changes everything. They're not supposed to be having babies. <laughs> um, so we've talked about uh, the tricolor bat. I think you said the smallest or certainly one of the smallest. Give us a comparison then. So one of the larger bats found in Mississippi, what would it be? And kind of gives a size comparison. So uh, probably our biggest bat is the hoary bat, uh, but they're not so much prominent here. So I'm going to talk about the big brown bat because I've seen tricolor bats next to big browns and big browns are more than twice the size. These are massive bats. They have a wingspan from 12 to 14 inches. So if you see a big bat flying around at night, like you're like, this is a big bat, it tends to be the big brown. They're the ones that like to fly around your, uh, if you have a street light or whatnot. Um, and we've touched on this briefly, but uh, if you encounter a bat uh, out and about, maybe out in the woods or in your neighborhood or whatever, what's the best thing to do? So if the bat is grounded, you want to try to get it help to get it onto a tree or something. So you want to have something like a branch to let the bat cling onto. You never touch a bat with your bare hands. Even though it's less than 1% of bats have rabies, we don't mess with rabies. Mm -hmm. We don't ever encounter that situation. So, uh, or if you happen to have a towel or an extra shirt or a jacket, you can use that as a barrier too. But by using that branch, that bat, you're seeing if that bat can actually cling onto a branch. If it can't do that, if it's not having those basic functions, it needs to be uh, seek medical attention. Usually you can bring it to a veterinarian. Usually they have a source of uh, rehabbers. Or we do have some rehabbers in the state um, that have put their connections out there. But if say you just see a bat on a tree, take a photo of it, send it in. I love seeing that. It might be something cool. Yeah, I mean, I because I I don't I don't know that I've ever seen a bat in the wild. So if I saw one, I would I'd probably drop my phone or something. Yeah. <laughs> but if you do see one, uh, you don't want to engage it physically, mm -mm. or you know, don't play with it, or try to get it to climb on branches for you. Yeah, just usually take they're gonna the picture, yeah. You know? Usually they're gonna fuss at you. Bats can be a little fussy. They're like, hey, I was sleeping. You know, it's usually during the day time you see them, so they're sleeping during that time. But also, we're in a period of migration, and this will also happen in the fall. Yeah, so bats are going to get tired, and they might rest on a convenient spot and not necessarily a protected forest. So you might see them on buildings. And the one that I get the most calls for being on buildings are tricolor bats. And they love department stores, and they love to hang right up in front of their doorways. So... Um, Usually in that instance, the bat just needs a rest for a few days and then it will take off. But if there's an instance where there's a lot of people coming through and there might be a threat to the bat, that's when you need to call me and I can come get the bat or I can get somebody else to come get the bat. 
And as a general rule of thumb, when we talk about wildlife, if you see something, enjoy it from a distance, take pictures of it. That's what, you know, we've got our smartphones for, but give it its space and it'll give you its space. And I think both of everybody will be happy in that type of encounter. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest for this hour is Caitlin Cross from the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. We got a couple of callers on the line and we're running out of time, so let's go ahead and go to the phone starting in the Mississippi Delta. Elaine has called in today. Good morning, Elaine. You're on the air with us, so go ahead. Yes. I live in Quitman County. I would like to have bats. I've even researched and gotten the specifications and had my son and granddaughter build me a bat house, which has not been put up, getting 20 feet or more in the air is a bit of a problem right now. Anyway, what is the likelihood I might ever get an inhabitant? I I hear that you're lucky if you get one within two or three years. Yeah, bat houses are not the go-to habitat sources for bats. So if you have, like, trees around, that's going to be the preferred room at Roos. So usually, (laughs) good. Uh, Do you know if they're like pine trees or hardwoods or anything? They're hardwoods, mainly varieties of oak. Okay, good, good, good. That's a good tree. And a bio. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So bat houses tend to be successful if you already had, like, say, bats in your attic. So if you already have a good colony nearby, they tend to move there. Now, not every bat is going to use a bat house. This is going to be the species. Yeah, I realize that. Yeah. So these are going to be species that use crevices. So in Mississippi, bat houses are inhabited by big browns, evenings, and uh, Brazilian free-tail bats. And uh, sometimes tricolors, but that's more of a northern latitude uh, situation. So usually the general recommendation, if your bat house is not used within three years, try relocating it to a different spot if you have more area in your land. Um, we have several bat houses on our trail systems at the museum. I had one that was actually used, and, at, and it took about five years before it was finally used. But by the time it was being used, the bat house was starting to fall off the pole. So I had to take the bat house down after the bat moved and um, fix the wood up. And because of the location, I had to move it just like 10 feet away. And the bats still have not used it since. So it's a little funny situation. Uh, but that just know if they're not using your bat houses, they're using the trees nearby and you have adequate habitat for them. Okay. Well, I knew it was an iffy thing, but I had some nice rough old cypress and they were willing to build it, so I thought, we'll give it a try. Yeah, you never know. Okay, thank you. All right, Elaine, thanks for the call. Would it be a good idea to put the the bat box on a tree? No, not necessarily, because uh, one, your tree has branches, and it's going to shade it out, and two, those branches are perfect perching sp- spots for owls and hawks, or even helping uh-huh. uh, rat snakes have access to the uh, bat house and also squirrels love to destroy the roofs of bat houses and make their own nests in them <laughs> so i don't put them on trees okay and i had forgotten we had mentioned earlier that they need that heat for the babies to be uh, when they're first born so mm-hmm. all right uh, let's uh, get another call in here it's uh, mike who's called in from hernando mike you're on the air with us your turn go ahead uh question please do we have fox bats in this state and if so where are they no, we do not. And I think you're talking about the giant fruit bats that inhabit Australia. Yes, I am. And I'm from South America. Yes. 
So usually okay. the fox ones I, I think of Australia. So no, those are going to be in areas that can, since they eat fruit, they need to be an area that can support a fruit um, all year round. Let me ask you this. There's, a, as you know, there's a hummingbird center up here in North Mississippi mm-hmm. where there's millions of them and people go to see them. Is there anywhere like that around this part of the state where people can go and observe and see them and photograph that? Hernando, I know there's two wildlife rehabbers that do bats around there, but I don't know if a specific viewing area. Um, you might want to go to, I think there's some bald cypress forests nearby in Hernando. I don't do uh-huh. too much work up there. Uh, but there's the Chapshuma right. uh-huh. Swamp. Uh, and we do, the Bat Working Group does some events out there uh, every now and then. Now where's that? Where's Grenada. that? Close to Grenada. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, we go down through the Delta a lot. Yeah, we just, I've never seen a bat, and I'd like to see some. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Thanks for that info. Yeah, contact Robin at Chachuma if you go close to Grenada. She's, I'm sure she's got bats. Oh, yeah. yes, definitely. And she'll oh, show them off. Excellent. All right, okay, uh, thanks. Um, so, um, have we talked about uh, the family unit? Do do um, do bats congregate with each other? F- family units alone signal. How, what's the deal there? Mm, depends on the species. So, with the tricolor bat, they tend to be solitary. Even though in the winter you'll see hundreds and some areas thousands of them, they tend not to touch each other. Um, or there might be a few near each other. But then you have another species like the southeastern myotis, where I like to call them cuddle puddles. They'll be, um, it can be just a few of them or it can be hundreds of them. And so the difference between the southeastern myotis and a tricolor bat, they both use caves in our winter, but during the summer months, tricolor bat's going to go use the trees outside and there'll just be a few of them. Southeastern myotis are going to use the cavities within a tree and there'll be hundreds of them. So depending on the species, it depends on their preference to have another bat touching them. All right. I believe I had a case of misidentification. Let's go to Jim, who's called in from Silver Hill. Jim, you're on the air with us. Go ahead. Uh, yes. Uh, I've got bats in my belfry, so to speak. Uh, <laughs> I've got a small colony of bats living in the recessed lighting on my porch up in the ceiling. And we love having the bats around, but is there any way for me to move them from there to a bat house that I have got located nearby. Uh, not physically, unless you get somebody that's permitted to handle the bats. And I've seen this situation before with bats using those lighting, especially in like garages where people leave their or carports. And um, usually, there's a period where the bats move out, and in that instance, the people change the way the lights are so there's no crevices uh, or they open it up and usually the bats move away from that area so once you exclude them or divert them from the area they're using they'll usually go to find another area nearby which would hopefully be your bat house but i have learned over the years you can't just go put a bat in a bat house and expect it to stay there it's not going to do that you can't use guano as a an attractant it doesn't really work um, so the bats are going to use the bat house or they're not. But the times, uh, several times I have seen bats move from a house to a bat house. If mm-hmm. you positioned it just right close to it, once yeah. you got the excluding done. Yeah. But usually you got to exclude them first. But, I mean, there's been cases where just putting, simply putting up the bat house 
has worked, but usually you have to do something to deter them from the area they're using first. All right, uh, that will wrap us up for today. Creature Conference is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio, funding provided in part by listeners. To hear today's show or previous show, you can visit creaturecomforts.mpbonline.org. Our show was produced today by Java Chapman, and our call screener was Liz Gill. So for Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest, Caitlin Cross, I'm Kevin Farrell. Inviting you to stay tuned because up next, it's autocorrect. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts heard only on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.